Welcome to the Harmony Church Podcast. For more information on service times, any upcoming events, or joining a life group, please check out our website, harmonychurch.nz. We really hope this week's podcast blesses you. Let's give a really warm Christchurch welcome to Chad Mansbridge. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> G'day. I said, uh, said last night at the conference, nine years, if I get invited back next year, I'll uh, have to get a t-shirt or something for 10 years, surely. A crown. That'd be great. A crown. Now, I don't really get your accent, but would I have to draw with this crayon? Is that what you do? <laughs> Catherine just introduced me. Uh, for those of you who don't know me or those watching via live stream, uh, do we have a photo of my family, boys? Do we have that? When I was here last year, Mother's Day, we had a booth, a photo booth in our church, and this is what uh, my family looked like when I was here last time. We don't do family photos very often, so they look better when they're not with me. And uh, there's Jay and the four kids. Zoe uh, is number four. Charlie, Ebony and Jesse James are 18, just started university. I live in a place called Victor Harbour. Our church is called Bayside. And uh, we are 17 or 18 years in. We planted a church when we were 23 years of age. And our town looks something like this. I think that's on the next picture there, beautiful coastal town. And by the sounds of it, when I get back home, I'm going to be enjoying Victor Harbour for two weeks. Uh, solid, which is, which is great, staying home. My brother said I can apparently have to drink Corona for two weeks in a row or something. I haven't quite worked that one out. But uh, that's what a Corona holiday is, apparently. So I'll be doing that when I get home, uh, so to speak. Uh, but that gives me extra time to work on my social media, ching, ching. Uh, just on just on Instagram this year because I'm super trendy. So uh, my Instagram looks like something like this. If you look me up on social, it looks uh, looks something like that. Oh, there you go. Oh, gee, isn't he handsome wearing a t-shirt? And uh, and as Gideon said, I don't think you do have any copies of my book here. We uh, have sold out in the bookshop, but he qualifies you and Jay's book as well, both available on Amazon. So if you find yourself locked indoors for two weeks, uh, then get some good reading done and keep an eye out on my socials because uh, I just put he qualifies you into audio book, okay? And I voiced it myself. It's always good when you have the author voicing their own book. And uh, so I did that myself uh, about a month ago. I was meant to be out for the anniversary of He Qualifies You, 10 years old on Valentine's Day. All the, uh, Amazon are running behind. But stay tuned. It'll be available quite soon. That's He Qualifies You, a great little book. And I preached on a good part of that content, meh, meh, maybe a third of it, last night. So if you are here for the conference last night where I spoke about the covenants and Abraham's covenant when it became... God gave the law at Sinai that is all explained very well in that concise book written for men nice and short. Okay, but that brings me to an exclusive reveal tonight as I share with you some of the content of my next book, of my new book, as Catherine just said, coming out sometime this year. 
and uh, it is at the editors as we speak. And uh, for the next two weeks, I guess, by the looks of it, I'm going to be working on the next stage, which is uh, dealing with illustrators and uh, um, graphics people and production and that type of thing. So stay tuned for that. My book will be coming out sometime this year. But I want to give you a bit of a summary and a synopsis tonight as I jump into the how-to series. And I'm going to speak tonight on how to interpret the Bible. How to interpret the Bible. And basically, I'm going to split this in half, okay? The first half, I'm going to give you a bit of a summary and synopsis of biblical interpretation. I'm going to move at supersonic light speed and give you a whole bunch of concepts and you're going to say, okay, I'll wait till the book comes out. That's fine. You're not going to catch it all. That's going to be the first half. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to demo because these nights are supposed to be very practical. Okay, and truth is supposed to be practical. And so we're going to strip away the pulpit here. I'm going to sit down on a stool. I'm going to open up to a maybe kind of difficult to understand passage and we're going to do a bit of a Bible study together and put some of the things that we've learned conceptually into practice as we open our Bibles and do a bit of interpretation, okay? So that's where we're going tonight. We are going to have an awesome evening. I'm glad you're here. And everybody said, get on with it, Chad. All right. (laughs) Foundational scripture for the subject of biblical interpretation, or for me at least, comes from 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul writes to Timothy and simply says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul refers to Timothy as a minister of the gospel, but he refers to him as a worker. When it comes to handling the scriptures, there is work to be done. There is work to be done. In some senses, biblical revelation comes to us with some assembly required. Okay, But the good thing is God has given us everything we need to unpack the Scriptures and to make it work for us uh, in our lives and to put it into practice. We are workmen of the Scriptures. And the second word that stands out to me in this verse is he said, who correctly handles the word of truth. Now that is a massive implicit statement <laughs> that says that if there is a correct way to handle the Bible, that means there is also an incorrect way that's right if there's a healthy way there's an unhealthy way the same scriptures that can be used to help us can also harm us if we don't use them if we don't handle them if we don't another translation says rightly divide them properly and in 2013 on my second visit here to this conference and it's on youtube i did a preach at this event called rightly dividing the word of truth and i suggested on that evening that there are three major means and mechanisms that god has given us to correctly handle his scriptures god has given us number one the spirit the bible is your ever no the spirit is your ever present tutor The Bible is the only book where the author is with you every time you read it. And so God gives us the spirit to teach us as we read. The second thing is God has given us the saints. God has given us other people because the Bible is not just a supernatural book. So we need the spirit. It's also a community book and God puts us in community so we can learn from others. No preacher knows everything. And so God shares revelation among his diverse body of Christ so that we can rely on other people to help us understand its complexity. God has given us the spirit. God has given us the saints. And thirdly, we have the science of hermeneutics. These are your three toolboxes as you as a good workman approach 
the scriptures. There is a science, there is a process, there are rules as we look at interpreting the scripture properly. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, Paul says this, he says, the law is good. The law, possibly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, maybe he means the whole Old Testament, not 100% sure. But he says, the law is good if you use it properly. There is a proper way and an improper way to handle the scriptures. And the word there for proper means according to the rules. It's the same word in the Greek that he used when he talks about a sports person who must compete according to the rules. There are rules in play when you play sport. There are rules in play. There is a science. There is a process to go through as in order to handle the scripture properly. And I want to present to you, because I'm a three-point preacher, that's what I do. I want to present to you a very three, a simple three-step process to go through as we understand the scripture. And I get this from Nehemiah chapter 8. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Who can turn there the quickest? Take that game. Let's try that again. Now, listen, we'll put it on the screen. It's okay. The context of Nehemiah 8 is that God's people have rebuilt Jerusalem. It's towards the end of the Old Testament uh, sort of narrative. They've rebuilt Jerusalem, okay? And they've just rebuilt the walls. And Ezra brings out the Bible, the Bible that they had, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh is the fancy word for it, okay? Ezra brings out the Bible and he begins to read it with the Levites helping the people understand. And this is what we see, Nehemiah 8 and verse 8. It says that they read out of the book of the law of God, translating it. They read out of the book of the law. The first step in the process of handling the Bible properly is to read it. I told you this was simple, okay? Because the first step in the process of hermeneutics is answering this question. What does the Bible say? What does it say? We need to find the answer to the question. What does it say? And you find that answer by reading it. And you find that answer by reading it in a translation that makes sense to you. Because these people who were gathered there, who were listening to the word being read, were people who spoke Aramaic. For the last 70 years, they lived out of Babylon. They learned the Aramaic language. They spoke Aramaic, but their Bible wasn't written in Aramaic. It was written in Hebrew. So they needed language experts who the Levites were, language experts to translate the ancient language that they did not know so that they could actually understand the words. And it's the same with you and me today. We need to read the book in a translation that makes sense to us. How do you go about choosing a translation, Chad? Well, you need to get my book and then you can uh, answer that question because we don't have time to go into that tonight. But there's basically two major ways to translators approach a translating work. One is that they take a word-for-word approach and try to get the closest word to match. But sometimes that can appear very clunky and doesn't read particularly well. So what other translators do is they say, well, listen, because that's hard for people to read when it's really rigidly literal word-for-word, we'll take a more mm, thought-for-thought approach. So we'll read it and we'll say, well, this is the thought the author was conveying and we'll put that into language that makes sense to our audience. So we'll take a thought-for-thought approach. So basically most translations fit on this kind of spectrum. There's other stuff on YouTube about that. The point is, number one, you need to answer the question, what does it say? What does it say? Step number two, you need to answer this question. 
What does it mean? What does it mean? How many of you know sometimes there's a difference in a relationship between what somebody said and what they meant? What's the same with our relationship with God? It's the same with the way God communicates. Sometimes he says something, but it is said in a way that you have to actually not know the words that are said, but the meaning of those words. It's not just enough to say, what did God say? We must say, well, what did God mean? And that's what we see here, Nehemiah chapter 8. It said they read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand. Not just translating the words, but saying, this is what it means. This is what it means. And this second step in our three-step process is really important because this is where most battles for good doctrine are won or lost. Most Christians agree with what the Bible says because we've pretty well all got the same book. On most fundamental issues, we know what the Bible says, but we disagree as to what it means. And so this step is really important. In fact, it's so important, it gets its own fancy pants technical term. And that term is exegesis. Okay? Exegesis means this. It means to draw out the intended meaning that the author put in there. When you read the Bible, you are not to say, reading the Bible, now what does that mean to me? What does it mean to me? No, that's not your question. Your first question is this, what does it say? And what does it mean? Full stop. What did the author mean? Most of you have a traffic app on your phone. Okay, you want to go somewhere, you put it into Google Maps or whatever, and you have a traffic app. And around here in Christchurch, with all the construction that's going on, every now and again, your map shows a red line through the road that you want to travel down. Have you seen that before? Now, if you go, ooh, red. Do you know what red means to me? It means love. (laughs) That's a loving road. That's what that means. Someone else who's an accountant says, oh dear, red, that road must be in financial trouble. (laughs) Someone else who's into politics says, ooh, socialist. It's a socialist road because that's what socialist means. A soccer fan says, no, 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 it's a Manchester United road. Uh, Someone else says, no, only red cars are allowed to drive on it. And someone else who takes it really literally said, wow, yesterday it was dark grey. Someone must have painted it red overnight. Isn't that amazing? It's a red road. No, the question is not, what does red mean to you? The question is, what did the author mean? When they painted that road red on your app, they're saying, the road is red, the road is red. That's what it says. But what does it mean? Well, you have to get into the head of the author and say, what did the author mean? That's what exegesis is all about. The aim of exegesis is to discover the author's intended meaning. A-I-M. The aim of exegesis is the author's intended meaning. What did he mean when he said that? And while it sounds pretty simple when you're talking about a travel app, transport app, when you're reading the Bible, this is actually pretty complex and can be pretty difficult. And as I said, it's here that most arguments take place. What does it mean? The third step is this. What does it say? What does it mean? And then thirdly, What does it matter? Who cares? Who cares? What does it matter? 
oh, I know that's what the Bible says. And we've pretty well discovered what it means. But what does it matter? What does it matter to you and me? What does it matter today? What does the heavenly in, uh, revelation that was given, how does that become hands-on application for me today? How does heavenly inspiration, God spoke these words. How does heavenly inspiration become implications for you and I today? How does this ancient text have any relevancy or significance to a modern day audience this is the third and final step we are to answer the question what does it say what does it mean and what does it matter and here in nehemiah that's exactly what these guys do next verse nehemiah 8 verse 9 nehemiah the governor ezra the priest and scribe and the levites who were instructing the people said to all of them this day is holy to the lord your god so do not mourn or weep For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. So he said to them, listen, go and eat what is good, drink what is sweet, send portions to those who have nothing, since today is holy to the Lord. Don't grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Come on, everybody say, joy. Joy. Need to help me here. It's an evening service. Come on, we're into it. You need to respond well, all right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. What's the point? They knew what the scripture said because it was being translated. They knew what the scripture meant because they were giving the meaning as they go. But the crowd did not understand the implications of it for them. And so they responded wrong. They heard the translation. They heard the meaning. And then they started to weep and to cry. And the Levites are saying, no, 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 you don't understand. For us today, that means we're to rejoice. The proper response for us is rejoicing and celebration and joy. That is the response you should be giving. And so some people, we can understand what the Bible says. We can understand what it means, but we don't put it into practice properly. We don't respond appropriately. These three steps are all essential. And here is the sequence or the process of healthy hermeneutics. There it is. Isn't that easy? What does it say? What does it mean what does it matter and because this process here the second step is so important in fact I would say that in most debates most discussions and dialogues about different views of the Bible take place in this second step on most complex issues about 70% of our work I would say is here we really need to do this exegesis thing well and it's actually again fairly simple I call these four considerations of exegesis, I refer to the ABCs of exegesis. When we seek to discover what the text means, we are to consider four things, A, B, C, S. The first thing is this, who is the author and the audience? When you read the Bible and you know what it says, and you're trying to work out what it means, you need to ascertain who the author and the audience are because listen darlings you can read Leviticus those following on social media at the moment we're reading the Bible through in the year this week from today we're starting the book of Leviticus but the book of Leviticus was not written to you you are not the intended audience of that book now it's written for you because all scripture is God breathed but it's not written to you The book of Leviticus is written for the Levites. 
It's written for the ancient nation of, nation of Israel under a sacrificial system and the whole instructions there are for God's people under that era, particular era of time and how they needed to sacrifice animals and deal with mildew and do all kinds of other strange things. It was relevant to, it was relevant to all of us throughout history because it does hold relevance but it doesn't necessarily hold direct application for us and we realise that when we read it knowing the audience is not necessarily Christians. The audience is specifically those who are in the Mosaic era of time. That is the audience it was written to. I shared a few years ago that Proverbs 31 is not written to women. Proverbs 31, the wife of noble character, was written to the king's son. Because the whole book of Proverbs, the context is the author is a son, a son, a son. So when you get to Proverbs 31, it doesn't say a wife of noble character who can be her. This is who you have to be, daughter. You have to be like this woman. This is the standard you need to be. No, it says a wife of noble character who can find her. The question to the son, because that's the audience, is what kind of man gets that woman? What kind of man finds a wife that awesome? And if you don't realise that as you go in, you're going to read Proverbs 31 thinking, this is written to girls telling them what they should be like. No, it's written to boys. It's written to sons saying there are awesome women out there and there's character requirements of the male that is required to be worthy of her. And you will miss that. Because there's three or four verses in there that speak about what the male should be like. You'll miss that if you don't understand the intended audience. Now, everyone can benefit from Proverbs 31 because it's scripture. But you'll miss the nuance if you don't discern the author and the intended audience. The first thing we do to seek the meaning of a text is to go, who's on first? Who's on first? Oh, come on. I think the oldies, I thought the oldies would get that. Who's on first? I oh, forget it. Okay. Because the whole Bible is written for you, it's not necessarily written to you. The second thing you need to do is consider the big picture background. Every detail of the scripture is like a puzzle piece that fits in a puzzle. But unless you know the big picture story of the Bible, you're going to be really confused as to where your bit fits. You've got to, consider, you've got to have some type of understanding of the big picture chronology of the scripture. So when you read Isaiah and it says, I will make a new covenant... Or Jeremiah, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. New covenant scripture. And you go, well, that's great. But how come the house of Israel is different to Judah? Why are they different? Will you understand if you understand the big picture view of the history of God's people? It's good to have a big chronological view. It's also helpful to understand something of the culture of the time, the background of what you're reading. Okay, so that when you come across scriptures like, why don't you kiss one another at church? You understand, maybe there's a cultural context about that scripture. Okay, (laughs) okay, now that was a joke. No, no, when you read a scripture like the nativity story, and it says in the Bible that when Jesus was born, Caesar demanded that the whole world had a census. And as a First, as a, 30, a 21st century person, you say the whole world was, had a census? How did Caesar 
get a census to Fiji? Well, he didn't. Because in those days, culturally, they didn't, they didn't have a concept of the whole world as a globe. They saw the world as their world. It's the whole world as Caesar knew it. It was the Roman world. Even though the Bible says the whole world, even though in Luke, in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost comes, it says there were people gathered there from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven was there. Now, were the Samoans there? Were Aboriginal Australians there? 2,000 years ago, were they there in Jerusalem for that festival? No, 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 because then, then goes on to say, every nation under heaven means every nation in the Roman Empire. Under heaven, it's like a term, because culturally, they, their heavens and their world was what they knew it was their empire at the time. This is just how they spoke. It's some kind of cultural understanding that you can bring. Otherwise, you will interpret things incorrectly. We need to have some type of understanding of the culture. And we also, as we saw last night, need to have some type of understanding of the covenant that's in play. This is all part of big picture background. Because the covenant, because you're going to be really confused when you read Jesus say, if you don't forgive your brothers, God will not forgive you. And then a few years later, Paul says, all your sins are forgiven. Even if you don't forgive people, all your sins are forgiven. God is not holding man's sins against them in Christ. No condemnation. for. Well, how do those two add up? Well, Jesus spoke. Your father will withhold forgiveness from you before the cross. To the audience, the background there was it was before the cross. After the cross, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that spoke through Jesus, speaks through Paul and says, Oh, now that the cross has come, all your sins are forgiven. Because at the cross, it changed covenant. And Jesus at the cross said, Father, forgive them even when they don't know what they're doing is wrong. He released a forgiveness that went beyond you having to forgive first. He said that. So it, there's a covenantal context to what he said. This is all part of the big picture background before you understand a text properly. The third thing you need to do, see ABCs of understanding what the Bible means. Author and audience, big picture background. See, we need to corroborate our content. We need to interpret the Bible with the Bible. So when you read a scripture that Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, okay, you think thorn in the flesh, what was that? Was it really like a thorn? Did Jesus give him cancer? What was the thorn in the flesh that Paul had? Well, you don't think what does the thorn in the flesh mean to you? That's not the question. What did Paul mean? And you corroborate your content. You say, well, hang on. Is that word, is that phrase used anywhere else in the Bible? Let's let the Bible interpret itself. And that phrase is used in the Old Testament at least two or three times. Where God says, as God's people go into the promised land, I think it's the book of Judges and one or two other places, maybe Joshua. He says, those people in the promised land, if you don't deal with them when you get there, they will be thorns in your flesh. They will be thorns in your side. It is a reference to human troublemakers. And so Paul goes on to say, I've been suffering persecutions and sufferings and beatings, etc., etc., etc. See, what do we do? We compare the Bible with the Bible. Allow the Bible to explain itself. So when you come across Paul saying that women will be saved when they have kids... Or I don't permit women to preach or have authority 
Yet we read through the book of Acts about females preaching and in the Old Testament as well about them having leadership roles. And you go, well, hang on. Let's not draw a conclusion from just one verse. Yeah, women can't be saved unless they become a mum. Yes, it says women will be saved through childbirth, but don't make a massive conclusion on what that means by only that one statement. You need to compare the Bible with the Bible. You need to read all the other passages on salvation that say salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. You need to see that in the New Testament, there were virgin daughters of what's-his-face that were prophesying. They were Christians. They were saved. Hadn't had kids, okay? Don't come to ridiculous conclusions on one Verse, if it doesn't match up with everything else you see in the scripture, you might have to scrutinize that verse a little more to say, hmm, I'm not sure what that means, but I'm going to dig a little deeper because you compare the scripture with itself. And the last thing we need to do, the ABCs of what does the Bible mean when it says, A, author and audience. Who's it spoken to? B, consider the big picture background. C, compare your content. Okay, corroborate content. Two or three witnesses before you reach a conclusion. The last thing is S, you need to consider the style of speech that is being employed. The style of speech that's being employed. And most books on hermeneutics, Gordon Fee is a great one, how to read the Bible for all it's worth, spend a great deal of time talking about the different genres of scripture. That poetry, parables, prophecy, prose okay these things sound different and as we ask ourselves what does it mean we need need to consider the style of literature the genre that is being used as we read because not everything in the bible is supposed to be taken literally when you see the road is red the author doesn't want you to take that literally It's not his intent. He wants you to understand there's busy traffic and you might need to make a decision about what you do about it. He doesn't want you to take it literally. You see, you can take the whole Bible seriously, but without taking it all literally. And that's okay, because that's how the author wants it to be approached. So when Jesus says, listen, guys, you need someone sins against you. Yeah, it's good to forgive them. You better forgive them. And by the way, forgive them 70 times, seven times. Is that literal? Does Jesus literally mean if someone does wrong by you, you need to walk around with the forgiveness app and make sure you forgive them 490 times exactly? Forgiveness doesn't count at all. You haven't really forgiven unless it's exactly 490 times. That's what Jesus said. No, 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 no. There's, there's something else that he means. There's some other nuance. There's a figure of speech there behind 70 times 7 that has an understanding that's other than literal. And Jesus spoke in non-literal language all the time. It's one of the things that got him into big trouble. Oh, yeah? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have anything to do with me. <laughs> People took him literally, turned around, because they misunderstood his meaning yes that's what he said but that's not what he meant cannibalism was not what he meant (laughs) yes he said if you destroy this temple i will rebuild it in three days but he did not mean the literal temple in jerusalem what he meant when he said temple he meant his 
body. You're not meant to take that. Literally, he was speaking with a figure of speech. When he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus freaks out and says, how on earth do I get back into my mother's womb? No, mate. No, 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 no. I know that's what I said. But there's a difference between what I say sometimes and what I mean. You need to consider the style of speech that I am employing. This is all the way through the scripture, probably more than we realise at times, that there are figures of speech and non-literal lingo all the way through and, it's, and it's, we can take it seriously without having to take it literally all the time because it's what the author meant when he said. What does it mean? No, what does it say? What does it mean? Consider the ABCs. And once we've got a fair idea as to what it means, and there's always, for many issues, a lot of discussion here, we then ask the question, what does it matter? And very simply, while maybe you can't apply this to every passage, for the most part, I want to encourage you to discover the joy of biblical application. Discover the joy. What did Nehemiah say? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Discover the joy. What does that mean for me? It means this, discover Jesus, discover others, and discover yourself. As you read the scriptures and you hear what it says, you understand what it means. As you say, what does it matter? Ask yourselves these questions. What do I learn? What does this reveal to me about Jesus? Because Jesus never changes. What does this reveal to me about others in my life and give me wisdom to do life well? And what has this revealed to me about myself? Because the word, apparently, as James says, is like a mirror that shows us the real you. They are some principles that is a sequence of some concepts as to how to interpret the Bible well. Can we do a Bible study now? Turn with me to Matthew 17. Oh, you're already there. Can someone take this for me? It's not fair that you guys get to sit down the whole time. (laughs) Now, last year I spoke about how to read the Bible. First step, what does it say? And I said one of the best ways to read the Bible, you can get the recording from last year, the best ways to read the Bible is sequentially. Sit down and read a book from start to finish because by and large, that's how they're intended to be read. Okay? Don't just do a lucky dip. Oh, Job 17 verse 9, wash your hands and you'll be strong. Okay? Don't just do that. Read a book from start to finish. And so what do you do? Well, it's March. And so you say, well, I'm reading through Matthew in March. That's a good commitment. I'm going to read Matthew in March. It's about one chapter a day. I'm going to do that and I'm going to watch the story unfold so that by Easter, I'm well and truly into the Easter zone. And so we're halfway through March and we're up to chapter 17. We know because we've just read chapter 16 that Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. We know he's just had the transfiguration. We know he's talking to his, his disciples and we come across this story. When they came to a crowd, 
a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. I brought him to one of your disciples, but they could not heal him. Verse 17. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, hang on, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, oh no, I'm not reading that verse. That'll do. Well, that's an interesting story, isn't it? I know what the Bible says. Now, as I observe this story, there's a few things that really stand out to me. Three statements. The first is when Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Did you notice that? The second is when Jesus said, What was the second thing? If you, the problem is you've got really little faith. But what you need to have is small faith. What was that, Jesus? The problem is you've got little faith. The solution is you need to have small faith. All right, that's pretty clear as crystal, isn't it? The third thing I notice is he said, when you speak to the mountain, it'll move. That's interesting. I wonder what he means by that. I know it's what he said, but what does he mean? So what about this statement, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation? What does that mean? Well, first thing we need to do in the ABCs of exegesis is work out the audience. And I think that's a pretty important question on this one. Who is Jesus talking to? Because as I read the story, we've got a young boy, his poor dad, and the disciples. And Jesus says, oh, wicked and unbelieving generation. Did Jesus say that to the little sick boy who didn't get healed? possible he was there did he say that to the father who brought his son for healing jesus looks at the dad and says unbelieving and perverse did jesus say to his disciples who had a go they had a go at healing him they did their best did he say to his disciples who his discipling these are people who are learning Did he say to his disciples, you are unbelieving and perverse generation? Now, because I'm reading the Bible sequentially, this phrase actually rings a bell for me because I know I've heard it before. I know I've heard it recently, this whole thing about Jesus scolding a generation. It turns out it was only a chapter or two earlier where Jesus said, no other sign will be given to this wicked and corrupt generation but the sign of Jonah. Yeah, he had to go. And he was talking there to religious leaders. That was the context. Well, that's interesting. He was talking to religious people. I wonder who else. So what you do is you now get on your Bible program 
Okay, you get a concordance or you go to something like biblehub.com or blueletterbible.org. You look up the scripture and you can type in the word generation and it will show you every reference to the word generation in the New Testament. I want to know, who, who does Jesus talk to when he's scolding a generation? And as you read those stories, he talks about wicked and perverse generation, adulterous generation. He talks again and again in these terms and it's always, incidentally, to religious leaders. Well, that's sort of building a case, put an idea in my mind that what if, is it possible Jesus was talking to religious people in this story? I then realise when I'm looking at the Bible program that there's uh, the first reference to this kind of phrase is all the way back in Deuteronomy where Moses prophesies an apostate generation and he says they are wicked and perverse. Jesus seems to be quoting Moses there. So I really want to know who he's talking to. And then I realise... I need to corroborate my content here. Is this story mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? Yeah, it's mentioned in other Gospels. So what if we look at those other Gospels and see if it helps us give a better picture of what's taking place? Let's just see if that's the case. And so I look up in my Bible here and I notice at the top here it says this story is also in Mark chapter 9. So let's go quickly to Mark chapter 9. Let's have a look. Let's see if this gives me a fuller picture of what's going on. I've got this sort of idea in my mind. What's going on? Let's have a look. Where are we going to read from? Little children and Jesus. Quest of James and John. No, because you're in Mark 10, Chad. Okay. Where are we? Oh, I put a bookmark in there, doofus. Okay. Verse 14. When they came to the other disciples after the transfiguration, this was, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. The teachers of the law are there, arguing with the disciples. Matthew didn't say that. Mark does. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. Now, who's he talking to there? Who's doing the arguing? The religious people or his disciples, we don't know. But what we do know is that there's an argument going on. Jesus walk, walks into an argument with his disciples, yes, and a whole bunch of religious people just happen to be there as well. A man in the crowd answered, Teachers, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. When it seizes him, it throws him on the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at the teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And here it is, O unbelieving generation. Jesus replied, how much longer should I stay with you? How much longer should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Well, now reading it in Mark, we've kind of got an idea. There's another possible audience here in the story that he's talking to. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, he fell to the ground, rolled around, phoned at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Who's him who believes? Well, Jesus believes. Immediately, the boy's father explained, I believe, I think, help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> Belief and unbelief. 
I believe, but there's unbelief there as well. When Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he didn't let them get any closer. And he rebuked the spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him, never coming again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that he said he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. <gasps> After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we do it? He replied, this, come, this kind can only come out by prayer. And yet the prayer Jesus seems to be talking about, because he didn't pray to God, the prayer seems to be a pronouncement. Maybe. What's the point? When we first read the story in Mark, it seemed like Jesus was telling off his disciples. That was the only real option we had. But the consistent theme of that phrase in all the rest of the uh, uh, New Testament is only ever talking to religious leaders. And guess what? They were there. But we wouldn't have known that had we not have looked and corroborated our content elsewhere. Before coming to conclusions on who someone the Bible is speaking to, make sure you dig into it a little deeper and have a look at who else could have been on the scene. Interesting. Is it possible? Well, you can go home and work it out for yourself. There's another phrase that he said there. He said, listen, you guys have got little faith. But the solution to that is you need to have small faith. Now, that doesn't really make sense to me. We have little faith. The answer is to have small faith. So one of the things you do when something doesn't quite make sense is you either read uh, another part of the Bible or else you read another Bible altogether. Because remember, there are basically two ways to translate there is the rigid word for word way, this is the exact word that is there in the Greek. Or there's the kind of the thought for thought. This is the vibe of what Jesus was saying. And the Bible I'm reading from now kind of fits in this area. The NIV say we're going to communicate the thought that Jesus was saying. Or at least it's the thought that we think he was thinking. So what I do is I think I'm going to get a more literal version and find out what the difference is between the word little and the word small. Isn't that a good idea? So I go get the ESV and I read it in the ESV which is more literal, and it says this. Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. Where's the word small there? It's not there. Hold the phone. Hold the phone. Go on to my Bible program and I look up the literal Greek thing. When you just click on Greek there, it shows you the words. The word little, the word sorry, small, is not there. The NIV people snuck it in. Now, that's not always bad. They do this because, you know, the nativity story I said before where it says that Caesar conducted a census of the whole world. They do it there too. They insert the word Roman. It's not in the text, it's not there in the Greek, but the NIV put it in and it says he took a census of the whole Roman world because that makes sense, okay? It makes sense. He's conveying the thought of Luke, not necessarily word for word, but the thought that Luke was having. The issue is it's what they think that they, that they think you should think. 
And so they put in the word small, even though it's not there. Because when they think of a mustard seed, they think it's a small seed. And there's other scriptures, actually, that talk about mustard seed being small. And the word small is there. The NIV inserted in, but it's not actually there. And you wouldn't know that if you only had the one Bible you were reading from. And so then my question is, they've got little faith, but they're meant to have faith like a mustard seed. Well, what is a mustard seed like? Well, it's small. So that could be what Jesus meant. They're black. Have faith that's black. Is that what Jesus means? I'm just going through some options. And then I do a bit of a research on mustard seeds. And I realise that, yeah, they're small. And yeah, they're black. And yeah, they have great potential to grow. Bloody, bloody, blah. But I also learned that the way they harvest mustard seeds is that they come out in pods and they dry out the pods. And then before they plant the mustard seed, before it can be effective, they need to get the pod off. It's like a protective layer because you can't put that in the earth. It's going to stop the thing from growing because it's surrounded by dead material. It's surrounded by a dead material that's protecting, as it were, the seed from inside. So what they need to do is they need to break the crap off. They need to break off the dead stuff. They need to break off the scaffolding. They break it off. They put it in a basket. And then they shake the darn thing <laughs> so that all the little seeds fall out and what you've got left in the basket is all the junk. Could it be that when Jesus said faith like a mustard seed, he meant faith that doesn't have any other junk attached to it? <laughs> Could that be what he meant? Could he mean it's faith that's pure, that isn't being hindered by dead, weighty material that needs to be gotten rid of? Is that possibly what Jesus might have meant when he said like a mustard seed? Is that what he meant when he said that? Because when Jesus spoke to this demon, that demon heard one voice only. Could it be that before he got there, that demon wasn't just listening to one voice, he was listening to the disciples' voice and the chief priest's voice and the Pharisees' voice and the crowd's voice and there's some faith in there trying to cast this demon out but there's a whole crowd of other crap there that is this basically confusing the demon. He just needed to hear one pure word of faith with no dead material around it. And so Jesus, when the crowd comes running and he's there with the Father, before the other voices get there as the crowd's coming, he says, get out right now. One voice, one thing said, not surrounded by other dead material. Is that possibly what it means? To not have little faith, but have faith like a mustard seed where all the other stuff's been sifted out. And so what you actually say is just one thing. You're just saying faith. You're not saying I'm going to be safe from coronavirus. I'm probably going to get coronavirus. I'm going to be safe from it. I'm probably going to get it. You're confusing. You, you, you might have faith there, but you've got, what are you surrounding it with all this stuff for? No, just say one word. Because that demon will obey a one straight word. Is it possible that that's what he meant? There's a difference between little faith and faith like a mustard seed. I don't know. but it makes a little bit more sense to me than saying small like a mustard seed. The last phrase is this. He says, if you say to this mountain, 
move, it'll move for you. If you have faith like, like a mustard seed and you say to this mountain, move, it will move. Now, what does that mean? Did Jesus intend for that a physical mountain to be moved that day? Was it an illustration to say this demon's like a mountain and you can move it? Obviously, it seems a little bit illustrative. I don't think it's... It seems like it's an illustration. But what did he mean when he said this mountain? Of course, looking at the text closely, you'll notice he doesn't say faith can move any mountains, plural. Faith can move this mountain. So I want to know... What does that mean? What is this mountain that he's talking about? And of course, I back up. I understand, well, hang on. What have I just read? There at Caesarea Philippi. Okay, because uh, uh, Matthew 16, there at Caesarea Philippi. Who do the son of man think I am? That's where they are. They come over here. They cast out the demon. They're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Is it possible that somewhere in Caesarea Philippi, there's a mountain that Jesus pointed to and said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move this Mountain, And what is the name of that mountain? So let me ask you, what's the name of the mountain of Caesarea Philippi? None of you know, because none of you are professionals in this area. So you need the help of other people. So you go online and you type it in. You go, what's the mountain at <laughs> Caesarea Philippi? And it turns out that Caesarea Philippi has a real mountainous range. It's actually right at the north of Israel. And the biggest mountain in all the promised land is there. It's called Hermon. G'day, Hermon. It's got a snowy top, okay, and it's a massive mountain. So is it possible that's the mountain he was pointing at? Was he pointing to the biggest mountain that Israel had ever faced and said faith can move even the biggest of mountains is that kind of what he meant what's the significance of Hermon because there's probably some illustrative it seems like there's an illustrative type of significance here where it turns out that Hermon is also on the northern border which means that in even in the greatest era of Israel's time they never moved beyond Hermon because it was so big they couldn't get past it is it possible he's saying Listen, it doesn't matter how far previous generations have gone with the kind of faith that I've got, we can take a generation beyond what our fathers have ever experienced. Beyond the boundaries of where your ancestors, our ancestors have ever been. That's where faith can take us. Going to all the world. Is that possibly what he meant? I don't know. I then do a bit of research and I realise that there's a book circulating at this time in history. It's not part of the Bible, but a lot of people at the time knew about it. It's called the Book of Enoch. It's not Scripture, but it was known at the time. In fact, our Bible quotes it. The Book of Jude quotes out of the Book of Enoch. So people of the time knew it. And the Book of Enoch tells a story, not saying it's true, I'm just saying it's truly recorded in Enoch, that this mountain, Hermon, is where fallen angels came to earth at. It's basically the origin of all the demons came from here. Jesus is casting out a demon out of a boy and then points to the mountain that apparently the understanding of the time was is where all demons had come to earth. Is it possible that he's drawing that connection and saying this mountain, it doesn't matter what demon it is, mate. It doesn't matter if it's a thrive, one that's made a boy mute and that's had all these issues. It doesn't matter what demon it is. Any demon that's come on that mountain you guys can tell it to move if you have faith like a mustard seed. Is that what he meant? 
I don't know. But saying I don't know is sometimes one of the best answers you can actually give. Because I haven't chosen a really simple scripture. I've deliberately chosen one because your Bible's full of them that's actually pretty complex. And it's actually not that easy to understand. And that's okay. It's okay. Because not all the Bible is simple to understand. There's a simple sequence to follow. Ask yourself, what does it say? Do your best to discover what it means. And then ask yourself what it matters. But we're all adults in the room. And we know that this thing, cover to cover, has a lot of complexities about it. That's why millions of people around the world are going to be talking about it today. One of the reasons. That's why one of the reasons there's so many different views because God has given us a book that is worth looking into. But here's the point of it. You can do this because all of you know how to ask questions. You know how to read. Ask good questions. What does it mean? And then consider with the help of the Holy Spirit, consider with the help of other saints, what does that matter for me today? And so I want to leave you with this. As you read scripture, even if you don't understand the meaning exactly, ask yourself, what does this teach me about Jesus? What does it teach me about others? And what does it teach you about you? What is the joy that I can is revealed in this passage? And I sit here and I contemplate. I say, Lord, I don't understand this all. But what I know is that this whole Bible is designed to reveal you. And I thank you, Jesus, as I see you in this story. I see you as a solution finder. That's who you are. You're the guy that found a solution where no one else could. You're the one where no doctor could help. No rabbi could help. Not even your closest disciples in that instance could help. But Jesus came along and had a solution where no one else can. That is the Jesus that I serve. I thank you, Jesus, that you, anything is possible for he who believes. And I thank you, Lord, that even when I don't believe perfectly, you do. And so, Lord, I have faith in your faith. I have faith in your faithfulness. Even when I'm too weak to believe myself, you perfectly believe and anything is possible for you. I thank you that there's no demon power, no problem greater that an intervention by Jesus cannot solve. I thank you, Jesus, that you are a miracle worker because the Jesus of this story is the same yesterday, is the same today. And that's why this story matters to me, because it reveals Jesus to me. Lord, what is it in this story you want to show me about others? Okay, yeah. There will always be others with complex issues in their life that are suffering, and, and I don't know the full details of them. There will always be others that have tried everything, that are doing their best. There will always be others that are arrogant, that are a part of a corrupt culture and generation and that get in the way of what God wants to do. Wow, is that what you want to show me today? I want to learn about others. 
I want to know how I can help other people around me. I learned from the Father in this story that there are people who believe, but they struggle to believe. And lastly, what does this story teach me about you, about me? Well, who do you identify with in this story? Holy Spirit, like the sun, I just feel right now, I'm like that sun. I've gone through a trouble that I just haven't got a breakthrough in. But I thank you that you have the answer to that. And I put myself like in the position of that son. I go, I know you can solve my problem. Like the father who's got someone in my family that I feel responsible for. I put myself in his shoes. I see myself in his shoes. And I go, Lord, I'm going to come to you like this man did. That even when he got a no first, even when he did his best and he went for prayer first, I'm going to try again for my family. I'm going to keep persisting. Maybe I see myself in the disciples and I realize, you know what? I do have what it takes to solve problems, but I'm giving my ear to the naysayers around me. I see myself as a disciple and I say, Lord, thank you. You don't rebuke me for having a go. Thank you. You rebuke my enemy and I learned the lesson. I'll separate myself at the moment. I need to separate myself from those voices at the moment. But ultimately, you know what? I'm a Christian and I've given my life to become like Jesus. In fact, the Bible says I've been created in his image. And so when I read this story and I'm seeking to discover who I am, maybe I shouldn't see myself as the son. Maybe I shouldn't see myself as the father. Maybe I shouldn't put myself in the shoes of the disciples. Maybe the person who I most closely resemble in this story is Jesus. Because in this story, there's only one of them who was fully righteous before the father. And that's me. And that's Jesus. In this story, there's only one of them who's full of the Holy Spirit and baptized in his power. And that's Jesus. And I'm like that too. Maybe I'm to put myself and see myself created in the image of Jesus because the Bible doesn't say I was created in the image of the Father in the story. It doesn't say I'm created in the image of the demonized boy. It doesn't say I've been recreated in the image of the disciples. No, actually, when I look at this story and I'm looking to see who I am, maybe I'm supposed to see myself as Jesus in this story and put my chest out and realize that same Holy Spirit lives in me. That even when others around me have tried, I can come along with the solution. That even when others around me are giving their ear to the nagging voices of the religious uh, corrupt culture around us, I can come in like Jesus and I can speak up boldly against the hypocrisy and I can come in with a solution where others can't. Maybe I should put myself in the sandals of Jesus and say, that's who I am in this story because I've got more in common with Jesus than I do with those other people. The reason Jesus, when Peter, in this previous chapter that we didn't read, here in Caesarea Philippi, he has a revelation of who Jesus is. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. The revelation of who Jesus is. And then he calls Peter and renames him because his name at that time was Simon. And he says, your name is Little Rock. You know how you've just seen me? I'm the rock. Guess who you are, mate? 
you're a chip off the old rock. Because you have more in common with me than you give yourself credit for. You, give, you have more in common with me. You're more like me than you actually know. You are the problem solver. You are the miracle worker. You are the one who can walk in my sandals and do what I've done. You can repeat that. Because there are many people that need salvation. There are many people that need the answers. And our God is mighty to do something about it. Through us, through us as his army of representatives, our God is mighty to bring wholeness and salvation to Christchurch.